us into your presence. Thank you that this gathering this morning is just a small taste of what awaits us when we come home, when we are home fully and finally. Thank you, Jesus, that the day is coming when you will receive us into the Father's presence fully. And until that day comes, we ask again that you, by your Spirit, would enable us with these gifts and with our lives to speak and to live the realities of the gospel of the kingdom to the end that you are praised in every place. Lord Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 15, very familiar passage. The story of the prodigals. There are actually three prodigals in this passage. There's the notorious prodigal, the young son who left home, went to a far place, squandered all of his money on wild and reckless living. Then there's another prodigal. The brother who, while staying home, nevertheless left home, left his father. And then there's the third prodigal, the father, who is lavish, prodigious in pouring out his grace upon the young son and who longed so, so deeply that his older son might know that same grace, that same lavish, prodigious love and mercy. Let's read this together, Luke 15, beginning at verse 11. And he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. 
Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this parable. Please help us as we think about it. Please speak into our hearts the riches, some of the riches anyway, of what you have left for us in this story. And encourage the hearts of your people, we ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, If I could, I just want to tag an invitation to you, uh, onto Glenn's invitation to you, inviting you to come this evening for uh, a great meal together, and also to hear some updates about our our ministry in Tanzania. It's just really encouraging, and um, Doug McAvoy and I are both going to share some things with you, so uh, please come. And the only reason we're asking you to sign up is so we can know how many tables to put up. So I'd ask you for a show of hands, but we're Presbyterians, and we do things decently and in order. So let's do things decently and in order, and you can sign up on your way out, okay? So we'll know how many tables to set up. Thanks for doing that. There is a painting hanging in the foyer, uh, which was not there until about 10 days ago, as most of you uh, are aware. It is a print. It is not an original. It is what is called a G-clay print, which is a particular technology, fairly new technology, that enables you to take masterpieces like that masterpiece and reproduce them. It is a reproduction of a Rembrandt. Rembrandt died in 1669. And this work, which is called The Return of the Prodigal Son, was quite likely completed within the last couple of years of his life. And that is uh, more than just a coincidence. I've done a little bit of reading, learned a little bit about Rembrandt, and it seems quite probable that Rembrandt's interest in biblical scenes and biblical characters and biblical stories Uh, is not just a function of the time, uh, not just a a function of some peculiarity in him or about him, but it seems that his interest in these things reflected a genuine and sincere spiritual interest. And what's particularly intriguing about his painting, The Return of the Prodigal, is the fact that it quite likely 
was created, painted, within the last couple of years of his life. And I'd encourage you maybe to Google Rembrandt and do a little of your own research because I don't have time here to tell you the whole story. But I will tell you that it appears that Rembrandt himself wandered off to a far country. And at the end of his life, came home so that his representation of the return of the prodigal son is as much autobiographical as it is a work of art. Let me ask you a question. What would we like for our church to be? What would we like for our church to be? What do we want to smell when we show up here, when we gather together? What do we want, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 2, what do we want the fragrance to be, the aroma to be? When we come into contact with Christ the King, Presbyterian Church, when people who are on the outside come into contact with Christ the King, Presbyterian Church, what aroma would we like to have permeate our life and ministry? How about home? How about home? with all of the best connotations of the idea of home. From the first chapters of the scriptures, the story of going home has been unfolding. The story of being exiled from home, the story of being away from home, has been unfolding. And you ask, what is the gospel all about? You ask, what is the ministry of the church all about? In the midst of all of the things that can be said about the church and its ministry, and in the midst of all of the things that could be said about the gospel, at the center of them is this idea, this idea of going home. I will arise And go to my Father. I will arise and go home. Luke 15 has received a whole lot of attention through the years. I'm going to recommend three, particularly, at least to me, they've been particularly helpful treatments of Luke 15. Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, A Story of Homecoming. Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, and I think there are some copies of it on the table back there. And then a sermon by Edmund Clowney, who was president of Westminster Seminary. A sermon in a collection of sermons called Preaching Christ from All of Scripture. This particular sermon is called A Father's Welcome. We just give you those three titles and encourage you to, to forage 
in those three titles. I honestly can't remember from whom I have learned what. (laughs) But I know that from these three pieces, as well as others, I've learned a ton about this passage. I'm still trying to figure out how to press it into my own life, work it out in my own life. But I want to share some of what I've learned. And I think it will help explain why I find it so fitting to have that particular print hanging in our foyer. The return of the prodigal son. Just a few things. Just a few things. Which I think will encourage us. At least I hope they'll encourage us very deeply with respect to our true elder brother, Jesus. Here's the first, the setting. We began reading at verse 11. But here's the setting for this parable, for this story. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. That's the setting for the parable. Jesus drawing tax collectors and sinners, not constraining them, but somehow wonderfully drawing tax collectors and sinners. Now you probably have some idea of who tax collectors and sinners are. Tax collectors were particularly frowned upon, looked down upon among the Jews because they were complicit with the Roman Empire in exacting taxes from the people. The people lived under the boot of Rome and the tax collectors were their employees. You remember the, the story of the, of the Pharisee and the publican or the tax collector and how the Pharisee, when he went up to the temple, said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, like him, the tax collector. And sinners, that's just a sort of an umbrella term that, that takes everybody in. Everybody from, from prostitutes and the, the truly profligate to people who simply didn't conform to the Pharisees and the scribes' understanding of the law and its application. The whole range of people fell under the general heading of sinners. And here is the text telling us that Jesus is drawing these people to himself. They're coming to him. So an article in our paper, our local paper, I think it was last weekend, it was an article uh, on a church, and it was kind of described as a biker church. Did you all see this? Yeah. And there were pictures, right? Pictures of a guy preaching. I mean, look, I know some of you have tattoos, but you keep them covered up. Because we are Presbyterians, and we do things decently in an order here, right? There was no hiding this guy's tattoos. I mean, they were from the wrist to the neck. Tattoos everywhere. And there were pictures not only of him, or a picture not only of him, the guy who was preaching, but there was a picture of a group of them standing in a circle praying, and the caption under the book said they were blessing a motorcycle. 
They were having a prayer meeting blessing the motorcycle. Now, I want to be careful how I say this. And I want you to be careful how you hear me. I thank God for that church. Because that church is reaching people I can't even begin to get close to. They terrify me. They scare me to death. But thank God somebody is reaching people who ride motorcycles with tattoos, probably from their neck to their navel, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't get close to them. But here's the interesting thing. They're all alike. Just like we're kind of all alike. Birds of a feather flock together. This is the stunning and striking thing about Luke 15 verses 1 and 2. Jesus is entirely unlike the people who are being drawn to him. He is the incarnation of what is righteous. He is the embodiment of what is just and good. He is the incarnation of what is pure. And He is attracting to Himself what is unrighteous and what is impure. What did they sniff when they were around Jesus? What did they sniff when they were around Jesus? What was the aroma that they captured, that they caught? There was something about Jesus that drew sinners to himself, that drew the unrighteous, the unclean, and the impure to himself. I want that fragrance, folks. I want that fragrance. And not only were they drawn to him, but he ate with them. Eating in this culture, in this culture, is a thing that conveys all kinds of notions of friendship and social intimacy and mutual affection. And here is Jesus not only drawing these people to him so that he might speak to them, but he eats with them. And that for the Pharisees was an unconscionable thing to do. Pharisees grumble because they see Jesus doing this. But you know, it is the heart and the core and the essence and the beauty and the loveliness of the gospel that Jesus, the pure and holy one, would delight to fellowship with sinners. We had communion in this church last week. What was that? What was that? Some memorial thing? Some thing that's here just for us to reflect upon something that happened in the past? No, that is Jesus eating with sinners. He still does it. I want to smell that. I want that aroma 
to permeate all that we are and all that we do. The Pharisees grumble. They mutter under their breath. Let me ask you this. You don't have to put your hands up. You don't have to say, yeah, that's true of me. Have you ever looked at a biker and mumbled under your breath? Hmm. You ever looked at someone from a different social caste and mumbled under your breath? Jesus didn't mumble. Jesus didn't mutter when he looked upon me. He was pleased to eat with me. Here's the second thing. Not only is Jesus willing to eat with me, Jesus is actually the one who seeks me. You need to get the flow of this whole passage. Notice verse 3. Jesus, in response to the first two verses, Jesus, in response to the Pharisees who grumble and who mutter under their breath, Jesus tells them this parable, one parable. Do you notice that? It's one parable. But it's one parable, and there are three panels to this one parable. And so the parable really is three little snapshots, two little snapshots, one longer snapshot, in which Jesus is trying to teach some specific things. And here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice that in these three panels, there are elements which are common to all three panels, all three stories. Right? There is something that is lost. There is a sheep that is lost, there is a coin that is lost, and there is a child that is lost. And then something is found. There is a sheep that is found. There is a coin that is found. And there is a child who is found. And then in each picture, at the end of each picture, there is a party. There is rejoicing. There is celebrating. Now that warrants a sermon in and of itself. When the sheep is found, there is rejoicing. When the coin is found, the woman invites her friends to come to her home to celebrate with her that she has found what was lost. And when the son comes home, there is a party. The slaughtering of the fattened calf, the calf that would have been slaughtered on a very special occasion, something that happened very, very rarely. Something lost, something found, And in each picture, there is rejoicing, enjoyment, and celebration. But notice, there is one critical point of dissimilarity in this parable on these three panels. In the first panel, there is a seeker, the shepherd, who goes looking for the sheep. In the second panel, There is a seeker, there is a woman who seeks her lost coin. But in the third panel, there is no one seeking the lost son. The lost son is on his own. Where is the seeker? 
Where's the seeker? That's a point of real discontinuity in these three panels. Where is the seeker? You know where the seeker is? Tell me where the seeker is. The seeker is the one telling the story. The seeker is the one who has come to be the elder brother to the younger brothers that the elder brother in the parable is not. The elder brothers are the Pharisees and the scribes. The ones who are righteous, the ones who know, the ones who stayed at home, the ones who didn't squander their livelihood and disrespect their father. No, they stayed at home. You know what the central point of the parable is? If the elder brother truly loved his father, he would have left home and he would have gone looking for the younger brother. If he truly loved his father, He would have gone looking for the younger brother. I was in seminary. We had a seminary classmate who used to play basketball with us. We didn't like him. We thought he was self-righteous. He prayed way too much. He never muttered under his breath on the basketball court. He never said anything inappropriate on the basketball court. One Friday afternoon, a game of basketball was being played, and the guy we didn't like was was not there. And everybody said, where's Bill? And then we learned where Bill was. Bill had learned that his best friend was camping in the in the mountains someplace in New York. And he had gone on this camping trip, leaving his wife and his children behind in Massachusetts because there was a young college girl with whom he was infatuated and with whom he had begun to have an affair. And Bill, the guy we didn't like, who we thought was self-righteous and priggish, had packed his car that morning, had gotten in his car, and had gone to the mountains of New York to get that man and bring him home to his family. That's what the elder brother does. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel is that Jesus, the eternal Son, leaves home and he comes to seek and to save that which is lost. He leaves home and he comes to find you and take you back to the Father. And here's a third thing. He does it at great personal cost. He doesn't grumble No, he leaves home looking for the wayward younger brother. And he does it at great personal cost. Look at the response. Look at the response of the elder brother, verses 28 and following. When the younger brother comes home, how does he respond? He's angry. 
He refuses to go in and join the celebration. And his father has to come out and entreat him, beg him to come in and join the celebration. Why do you suppose he's angry? Why do you suppose that beneath that anger is this simmering resentment toward his younger brother and even toward his father? Those of you who have read, studied Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, if you've read it closely, you've gained some insight into the anger and the resentment of the elder brother. The elder brother is angry and resentful because the elder brother has the same interest that the younger brother had. The elder brother looks the part. He stayed at home. He kept the laws. He he was faithful to all of the commandments. He was obedient. He's never disobeyed a command in his life. But do you know what is true of the elder brother? The same thing that's true of the younger brother. What is it? He doesn't want the father. He wants what the father has. And he resents the fact that one third of the estate, the third that the youngest son is entitled to, the older son is entitled to two thirds as the firstborn. The younger son who is entitled to a third of the estate has taken the third of the estate and has squandered it so that there's nothing left. And when the young son comes back, the father reinstates him, which now means that the two-thirds will be divided between them. The older son still gets his two-thirds, which is reduced by one-third. And the younger son will get a third of what is rightfully the elder brothers. The elder brother. The elder brother wants the father's stuff. Not the father. Just like the younger brother. The true elder brother. Jesus. gives up a whole lot more than a third of what is his. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection And sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What love? What love? What love is the apostle referring to in Philippians 2? Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. A thing to be clutched. A thing to be defended at all costs. But he made himself nothing. And the force of it is simply this. That Jesus, 
the true and better elder brother emptied himself of all of his riches and all of his rights and all of his power, all of his prerogatives, all of his glory and made himself nothing. Made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Your true and better older brother didn't just give up a third of what was his. He gave up everything. Gave up everything at great cost. Did he come to seek you rather than grumbling against you because of your tattoos or your social standing or your lack of pedigree? Jesus gave all away. And not only that, not only did he give everything up and humble himself in this way. When exalted, verse 9 of Philippians 2, when exalted, God having bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. When Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father, when he is seated upon his throne as the King of glory, ruling and reigning over all things, having inherited all things from his Father, what is he do with that he gives it to you he gives it to you Romans 8 the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ When Jesus receives back everything that he abandoned he still doesn't grab it and clutch it for himself He gives it to his brothers and sisters. Luke 12, 32. Here is Jesus. Don't be afraid, little flock. It is your Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. And your true elder brother Jesus doesn't resent it. What pleases the Father pleases Him. And if it pleases the Father for you to have the kingdom, you can be sure that it pleases Jesus for you to receive it. And then there's a fourth thing, a final thing, among many, many, many things that could be said about this passage. Here's a fourth thing. And man, if this isn't icing on the cake, I don't know where to find the icing. He isn't ashamed of you. He isn't ashamed of you. You see the response of the elder brother and how the elder brother speaks to his father. When he addresses his father about his brother, he doesn't call him his brother. He says, this son of yours Verse 29, this son of yours, verse 28, 
not my brother. This is what my brother has done. But this son of yours, he is no relation to me. He has no connection to me. He may be your son, but he's not my brother. His bitterness, his anger, his resentment have led to a deep, deep estrangement. If you look at the painting in the foyer, you see Rembrandt's depiction of the elder brother standing at the side, sort of in the shadows. He's removed. He is severe. He is distant. His resentment is evident. Not so with Jesus, your true and better elder brother. I mentioned Ed Clowney at the beginning of this sermon. I heard Ed Clowney preach a sermon from Hebrews chapter 2. I don't know how many years ago it was, but I have not forgotten it. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 10, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Indeed, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praises. Do you know who is here in the midst of this assembly, unseen to you, but a whole lot more interested in what is transpiring here than you and I are? Jesus, your big brother, who is not ashamed to identify you with you, who is not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters, who comes here to be with you as your true and loving and compassionate and saving elder brother. Jesus is here. People ask, who's the worship leader at Christ the King? If I look at Hebrews chapter 2, it's not Tom, it's not me. It's Jesus who delights in his brothers and sisters and who comes here to be with them, to lead them as together he and they sing praises to his Father and our Father. When our kids were young, I'm not sure I've told this story here. When our kids were young, and I think Annie, our youngest, was maybe three or four or maybe five, She must have been five or six because we were living in Orlando. We decided that it was worth the risk to take them out for lunch with some people new to the church after worship. I have never been so ashamed in my life. I'm not sure I've ever committed a greater mistake than I committed that day. Legs over chairs arms cast out behind, completely disrespectful of the environment in which we found ourselves, the Olive Garden. (laughs) Now, you know how this works. 
My embarrassment with respect to them had very little to do with them and had everything to do with me. I was guilty by virtue of association with them. Bad father, bad parent, bad teacher, bad discipliner, bad, 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 bad. Their behavior condemned me. Understand what Jesus is saying when he says, I am not ashamed to call them my brothers. He is not ashamed to be with you, to be named among you. He is your true and better elder brother. What do we want the church to be? What do we want to have be at the center of it? We could say a lot of things. We could say that we want for there to be a strong mission emphasis. We want, we want for this place to be a place where doctrine matters to people. We want this to be a place where evangelism happens. We want this to be a place where discipleship happens. But you know what I want at the center of it? I want for this to be a place where people smell the aroma of home. That this is a place where our true elder brother is loved because he didn't grumble at us, because he left home at great cost to himself to purchase our salvation, and he's not ashamed to be among us. And he's not ashamed to associate with anybody who is inclined to come here. When you come here week by week, and you walk through those doors, can I encourage you, just, just look to the right as you come in. And then when you leave, just look to the left. And see, see that poor, wretched boy in tattered clothes with a shaved head being embraced at home by his father. And understand, that's you. That's you. And that's me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I, I want to say it again. I want to say it before you. I want to thank you that you don't grumble at me. You don't mutter under your breath. But in fact, you left your father's home. And you came to rescue me. And you did that at enormous cost to yourself. And having rescued me, you are delighted to identify me as your brother. And you are pleased to identify all of us as brothers and sisters. Lord Jesus, in the midst of everything else that we are and that we do as a church, would you help me and help us to rest secure in that identity that we are your brothers and sisters. Encourage the hearts of your people. Send us out into this week and grant us grace to walk faithfully before you. We ask, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.